As we uh, continue our series on favorite Bible stories, we find ourselves this morning in Judges chapter 4. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament to Judges chapter 4. Maybe you were here last Sunday and and you're saying to yourself, uh, I'm kind of glad we're past that graphic and gory story from chapter 3. Well, not so fast. Um, Judges 4 is a little graphic as well. So, But you picked it, so here we are. Judges chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. 
And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are sinking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. He just doesn't learn. Anybody ever say that about you? Maybe you've said that about someone else before. Maybe you said that about your dog. He just doesn't learn. And, and usually it's a, it's a reference to someone who just doesn't seem to learn from their mistakes. They, they just keep doing the same things over and over again. Now there's a sense in which that could be said about every one of us here this morning. Even as Christians, we, we seem to fall into the same struggles and the same patterns of sin in our lives. In, in Romans chapter 7, you remember the, Paul, the Apostle Paul famously said these words. He said, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. That was true of Paul, and that is certainly true of us. And, and this is one of the things that, that stands out in the book of Judges. You, you read the book of Judges, and one thing you can't help but notice is that God's people just keep falling into the same pattern of behavior. They just keep falling into the same sins. This morning we, we have a story before us that is, um, well, it is memorable, especially for the end of the passage. But, but more importantly, this passage is very instructive. It, it's instructive because ultimately it, it reminds us that it is not our faithfulness that makes us right with God. It's not our keeping of the law that makes us right with God. This passage reminds us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who has won the battle for us. And therefore, we should rest in and we should rejoice in what he has done for us. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and I believe that I'm preaching to almost all of you who would profess to be Christians, I, I pray that you would rejoice in this passage, not so much because of the, the graphic nature, which is very interesting, but, but more importantly, that you would see your Savior here so that you will remember what he has done for you. And if you're not a believer if you're watching online, you do not know Christ, I pray that, that you would come this morning face to face with the only hope that there is, and that is to find salvation and forgiveness and eternal life in the Lord Jesus. As we look at this chapter, the, the three points from last week are the same three points as this week. First of all, Israel sins against God. Once again, they fall into sin. Secondly, they cry out to God. And then third, God delivers them. They sin, they cry out to God, and God delivers them. Last week we looked at the story of Ehud, the um, left-handed assassin who, who killed King Eglon. Then he, he led Israel to this great victory over the Moabites. And if you look at the end of chapter 3, it says the land had rest for 80 years. 
In other words, God used Ehud. He used this left-handed judge to bring peace to Israel for 80 years. But, but now, chapter 4 begins, Ehud is dead, and Israel just doesn't seem to learn. They fall once again into idolatry. They fall once again, they turn away from Yahweh, and they start following after Baal and Asherah and all of the gods of the Canaanites, and Israel once again finds out that their sin has consequences. Notice verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Jabin was not necessarily his name. It was probably a title. He was the king of Canaan. He ruled from a place called Hazor. Now, what do we know about Hazor? There's a very interesting connection uh, between Hazor and, and the book of Joshua. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but Hazor was located about 10 miles um, north of the Sea of Galilee. It was, uh, it was a very large, uh, very important city in the ancient world. It was about um, 200 acres in size. Many scholars believe that it was the largest city of its day. For comparison's sake, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fall of Jericho, and you might remember me telling you that Jericho was only about 10 acres in size. And, and Jericho, we, we maybe think of it as this big city, but it wasn't. And, and Jericho had a population of only about 1,500 people. For comparison's sake, Hazor is 20 times bigger. It's 200 acres, and instead of 1,500 people, Hazor had a population of about 40,000 people, probably the largest city of its day. Now, there's a connection between Hazor and the book of Joshua. Back in, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but, but back in Joshua chapter 11, Joshua and the Israeli army go into Hazor, and they capture the city, and, and they, they kill the king of Hazor, and they burn the city down. Total destruction, just as God had commanded them to do. Well, interestingly, here we are in chapter 4 of Judges, about 100 years after Joshua wiped out the city, and Hazor is back on the scene. And, and as you can imagine, in the minds of the people of Hazor, they've got a score to settle hundred years before this, Israel had come in and wiped out their city, burned down their city. Hazor has risen from the ashes, as it were, and now Hazor is ready to take it out on Israel. Hazor is now a major force in the region. Uh, they, they've, verse 3 tells us they have 900 iron chariots. And then the, the general over all of this is this man named Sisera, a guy who's going to have a splitting headache pretty soon. But this is a big army. This is a powerful army. You might remember that when, when Pharaoh and the Egyptians went after Israel, remember Israel leaves Egypt. Pharaoh says, you can go, go, get out of here, leave. And, and Israel goes and Pharaoh has a change of heart and he sends his army out after Israel. Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, had 600 choice chariots and a few other chariots. Hazor, we are told, has 900 chariots. Chariots, children, were, were powerful, fierce war machines in that day. And so Hazor is a very strong, very powerful people who is oppressing the people of God. But, but here's the thing the text doesn't tell us. Israel should have known the promise of God. Israel should have believed the promise of God. 
Back in Joshua chapter 17, God had said to his people, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, though they are strong. That was God's promise to them. Don't fear the Canaanites. Don't fear their iron chariots. I will fight for you. I will protect you. I will give you victory. But they didn't believe God's promise, did they? They didn't trust his promise. They didn't live their life in light of God's promise. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives a very well-known promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Jesus' promise to his church. That's Jesus' promise to us. And, and we look at our world today and we look at the godless culture in which we live. We look at the craziness that's going on in our culture today. And maybe we're afraid. What's it going to be like for our kids? What's it going to be like for our grandkids? Maybe we're discouraged. Maybe we go, you know, what's the point? This world is so wicked and, and so seemingly powerful and so influential. And here we are, this, this little group of people. Christians are obviously in the minority, and, and we say to ourselves, what hope does the church have? In the face of the godlessness and the wickedness and the immorality of our culture, And what happens is we end up kind of cowering in the corner just praying that Jesus would come back. Now, we should pray that Jesus would come back. But we should also live our lives in light of the promise that Jesus gave us, nothing is going to prevail against my church, he said. We can live our lives in faith, trusting his promise is true. Parents, you can can parent your children in faith knowing Jesus' promise is true. We can share the gospel in faith. We can minister to one another in faith. Nothing is going to defeat the purposes and the plans of Jesus Christ in this world. We ought to live our lives in light of that promise as Israel should have lived their lives in light of that promise. Don't fear the Canaanites. Don't fear their iron chariots. But Israel didn't do that. And and now they are subjugated to and oppressed by a very large, very powerful people. Verse 3 tells us that for 20 years, they're treated very cruelly by Jabin. Now notice that little phrase, very cruelly. That is probably actually an understatement. I'm not going to go into too much detail because of the, the age of our audience here. But, but chapter 5, which is um, the Song of Deborah, describes in a, in a poetic way the kind of cruelty that the Canaanites were known for. Again, basically, without going into too much detail, their goal was to kill all the men and sexually enslave all the women. Very simply, Israel is under the thumb of a very, very wicked people. And so they cry out to God, just like last week when they were oppressed by Eglon, they cry out to the Lord for help. And the next thing you know, we're introduced to Deborah. Deborah now comes on the scene. We, we haven't really heard much about her at this point. And 
Uh, We're told a few things about her. We're told, first of all, that she's a prophetess. Children, what that means is that she is one who speaks on behalf of God. She's, She's God's mouthpiece. Secondly, we're told that she was judging Israel at that time. What that means is that that people were coming to her to settle disputes. And so if people had a dispute with one another, maybe over finances or something, they would go to Deborah and she would settle their dispute. And then third, we're we're told she's doing this while sitting under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, which is in southern Ephraim. Now, now even though our our passage doesn't explicitly say this, the implication of Deborah doing this is that the Levitical priests weren't doing their jobs. See, one of the duties of the priests of that day was not only to offer sacrifices. We, we think of the, you know, the priests were there to offer sacrifices. They were to do that. But in addition to that, they were also called to speak God's truth to God's people. In, in this sense, you could picture them as, as the pastors and the elders of that day. That the priests of that day had the calling to teach God's people truth. But apparently they weren't doing that. They, they were unfaithful, and so God raises up Deborah. He raises up this woman, and he calls her, and he equips her to be his spokesperson. Now, I don't think that this was God's ideal. I, I don't think this is what God desired for his people. God had called the Levites, specifically Levite men, to speak for him. But the implication is that they weren't doing that. They they had abdicated their calling. And and the principle here is, is very simple. When there's a void in leadership, someone must fill that void. And that's what's happened here. When men won't step up and do what they're called to do, someone else has to step into the void. And that's what's happened here. God raises up what I believe is a very godly woman in Deborah, and and she is going to, down through the centuries, be known for leading Israel because the Levitical priests wouldn't do it. Deborah at this point gets all to Barak. Barak is the the general of of Israel's military, and she says to Barak, here's how it's going to go down. Here's God's word for you, Barak. I want you to get 10,000 of your soldiers, and I want you to go to Mount Tabor. And and I'll make sure that that I get Sisera to the Kishon River, and I will give you the victory. That That was God's word to Barak through the prophetess Deborah. And now notice how Barak responds in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. If you go, I'll go, Deborah. If you don't go, I'm not going. A lot of people like to pile on Barak at this point. Some commentators do this as well. Not all of them, but some do. And a lot of people will say, what a coward. What a coward. What a weak man. Really, he's only going to go if, if Deborah's going to go with him? But I don't think we should be too quick to judge Barak at this point. You see, when, when Barak is saying this to Deborah, when he says, if you go, I'll go. If you won't go, I won't go. He, he's not saying this as if he's just talking to an average Jewish woman of his day. 
It's not like he's saying, you know, look, Deborah, I don't have the courage to do this. And uh, I, I can't go unless you go with me. Remember who Deborah was. Deborah was a prophetess. Deborah was God's mouthpiece. And, and on behalf of God, she's saying to Barak, the Lord wants you to gather your troops and go to Mount Tabor, and you're going to defeat Sisera, and you're going to defeat the Canaanites. And so I think when, when Barak says, you need to go with me, because he's talking to God's mouthpiece, I think essentially what Barak is saying is, I want to know that God is going to be with me in this. I want to know that the presence of the Lord will be with me. I think Barak recognizes that unless God is with him, he can't do this. Unless God is with him, he can't win the battle. In other words, I think Barak understood his own weakness. Barak understood just how much he was dependent upon the Lord. And really, this, this is a good place for all of us to be in our lives. This is a good posture for all of us to take. Whether it's our parenting or our callings in life, our service in the church, whatever it is, Lord, I am weak. But you are strong. Now, why do I say this about Barak? Why do I not think Barak is a coward? Well, you may or may not know this, but Barak is mentioned in the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Barak is listed with Gideon, David, Samuel, and all those other people of Hebrews chapter 11. I think Barak was a man of faith. Barak was a man who, who knew his own weakness, but he also was a man who knew the Lord's strength. And, and Deborah now says to Barak, okay, I'll go with you. But, but notice what else she says in verse 9. She says, nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak, I, I just want to let you know that you're not going to get the honor in this battle. I don't think that's a statement about Barak's lack of faith. I think that's just a statement of fact. That's just how it's going to be. And notice, it doesn't make Barak say, well, Deborah, if, if I'm not going to get the credit, if I'm not going to get the honor, I'm not going. No, Barak knows now that God is with him, and he goes into battle. He goes up against perhaps the, the mightiest army of his day with their 900 iron chariots, and he, he believes God's promise. As a man of faith, he leads his army. Brothers and sisters, God is also with us, isn't he? And, and because he is with us, we should be like Barak. Yes, we know our weakness. But we also know that God is strong. We, we should be men and women and young people and children of faith. We know that God is with us by his Holy Spirit. He is always with us. 
So I ask you the question this morning, what, what things is God calling you to trust him for today? What things might you be saying right now, you know, I don't know if I can do this. God is with you. And he will give you strength. He will provide for you. We must go out in faith knowing he is with us. Well, finally, we notice that God delivers his people. Uh, Sisera, the great general of the powerful Canaanites, he, he hears that, that Barak and 10,000 troops have assembled at Mount Tabor, and he probably thinks to himself, that's nothing. I'm going to grab my 900 iron chariots, and we're going to go wipe these people out. And they go into battle, and, and on paper, this, this, looks like, I mean, this looks like a huge mismatch, right? Huge mismatch. It's like that uh, women's basketball, women's college basketball game. I don't know if you saw this a couple weeks ago. Maybe you saw the score. Um, Grambling played against the College of Biblical Studies. Now, that already sounds like a mismatch. Grambling beat the College of Biblical Studies 159 to 18. They won by 141 points. And, and that's kind of what this looks like here. This, this on paper is a, is a massive mismatch. Sisera and 900 iron chariots, Israel's no match for that. But do you remember what the great reformer, the Scotsman John Knox, once said? He said, one man with God is always the majority. One man with God is always the majority. Take a look at verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He goes out in faith, and look at verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. The unthinkable happens. The College of Biblical Studies beats Grambling. The unimaginable happens. Sisera's iron chariots are nothing to God. But children, Sisera gets away, doesn't he? The general of this great army gets away. He, he jumps off his chariot. He starts running. Now, children, can you run from God? No. Sister is running for his life. He's looking for a place to hide. And, and he comes to the tent of Jael. We're told here that, that Jael is the wife of Heber the Kenite. What, what that means, very simply, she's not an Israelite. Kenites were not Israelites. She's a, she's a Gentile. And, and not only is this a Gentile home, but we're also told here that the Canaanites and the Kenites were friends. They were on friendly terms with each other. They were in league with one another. And so what's being pictured for here, us for here is, is Sisera has come to the home of an ally, a friend. This is perfect. This is the perfect place to hide. But Heber's not there. Verse 11 told us that that Heber's gone away for, from home for a while. It's just Heber's wife who is at home. But Heber's wife comes out. Her name is J.L., and, and she, she greets Sisera, and she says, don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. You're, you're welcome to stay here. Come on in. That's what Sisera does. He goes inside jail's tent and, and he lays down and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm really thirsty. Of course you're thirsty. You've been running. I need something to drink. Can I have some water? Interestingly, right, she gives him milk, which I think makes you sleep better. Jael brings him some milk and she puts a blanket on him and, and Sisera says, hey, can you, um, can you be on guard, stand a lookout at the front of the tent and if anyone comes by and, and says, uh, hey, is anyone inside that tent? Just say, nope, just me, nobody else. And, and then, you know, Sister is so exhausted, he's been running for his life, he's been in battle, he's had a big glass of milk, and he falls fast asleep. And you know how it is when you're really, really tired. You know how it is when you, you, you barely, your head hits the pillow and you're out like a light. That's Sisera. He's out. Looking pretty good for this guy. He's found a friendly place to stay. Got something to drink. He can now sleep. JL, of course. She's got other plans. She grabs a tent peg and a hammer. She walks over to where Sisera is fast asleep. And we all know what she does. She takes the tent peg and she, she drives it through his skull through his temple right into the ground. And, and the end of verse 21 gives us the obvious conclusion. So he died. Yeah, no kidding. He's got a tent peg through your temple. Next thing you know, Barak shows up. He's trying to find Sisera. And Jael says, um, come on in here and I'll show you the guy you're looking for. And he goes in and there's Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. Told you last week the Bible was an earthy book, and this is another one of these earthy stories. And we get to the end of this, and, and we once again we ask that question we asked last week: what do we do with this? Why, why is this here? Uh, wh- what do we do, especially with the account where a woman takes a tent peg and she drives it through a guy's head into the ground? Well, a couple things. Um, first of all, If you're bothered by the graphic nature of this account, and if you're thinking to yourself, you know, that's just not very nice of J.L. That's not hospitable. She shouldn't have done that. Don't forget that the Canaanites were very wicked, evil people. They went around killing and raping people. Maybe more murderers and rapists and pedophiles should have tent pegs hammered through their heads. Don't forget the wicked nature of the Canaanites. And don't forget also how this is a picture of God's judgment upon the wicked. But but secondly, and, and most importantly, we read a story like this. I don't want you to miss the connection between this story and the work of Jesus. Okay, let me, give you, let me give you two things to think about, two things to take home with you this morning. First of all, look back at verse 9. Notice what it says in the middle of the verse. Deborah says to Barak, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. When Jesus came to this earth, Children, you know he did not come in great glory and majesty. 
Bible tells us that he laid aside his glory. The Bible tells us that he who was rich became poor for us. The Bible tells us that he suffered all throughout his earthly ministry. And, and the road to the cross for Jesus was a road of tremendous pain and anguish. The road to Calvary was not a glorious one for the Lord Jesus. But it was through the cross and through his suffering that God won the victory for us. Secondly, though, also, I I don't think the imagery of J.L. crushing Sisera's skull is insignificant. I think this is a detail that is designed to make us think of God's earliest promise in the Bible. Children, you remember that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam has plunged the entire human race into sin. And and God makes his first promise, and he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We we know this as the the mother promise, right? The the proto-evangelium is the term that gets thrown around. The first promise of the gospel. God promised to send one who would deliver us from our oppression and our bondage. He would deliver us from sin and the devil. And and he would do this through a savior who would crush the head of the serpent. And isn't it interesting that as you read your Bibles, there are all these little shadows of this promise. One of them is here where, where J.L. crushes Sisera's head. Picture of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. In Judges chapter 9, there's a, there's a woman who, who drops a, a millstone from a tower and it falls on a king. And when it falls on the king, we're told that it crushed his skull. Children, when, when David defeats Goliath, what does David do? He cuts off Goliath's head. All throughout Scripture, there are these little glimpses, these these little reminders. It's as if God is saying to us, don't forget. Don't forget my earliest promise. Don't forget my promise to crush the head of your greatest enemy. God will save his people. And there is nothing that a powerful king, a great military general, 900 iron chariots, even the devil himself. There's nothing anyone can do to stop that. God, through Jesus, won the great victory for us. He did just as he said he would do. And here we are given this glimpse to remind us that we have a glorious Savior who has defeated sin, death, and the devil for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for these little hints and glimpses and reminders of your great promise that you would send a Savior 
who would deliver us and who would defeat our enemy. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that he has done for us. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in your great work of salvation through him. We pray this in Jesus' name.